I have a couple of things that I want to do. Um, I was reading in a few things this morning, and one of the things I'm aware of here, uh, we have guys who work with their hands in our church. Not, not all, but most. And one of the temptations then is for those kind of guys to think that reading or study is not manly or something. And I grew up with a dad who had a 69 Camaro and you know could do anything with it. He was an electrician, a master electrician. He he was a guy and he read all the time. And he was an outdoorsman. He was famous for trying something new outdoors. He had his favorites, but he was all, you know, and, and he read so I want to, and I'm not challenging the women so much here, although women take this too, because women typically get this. Uh, and, and so I want to encourage you, there are some really good resources. As I'm going through the Psalms, one of them that I use is Matthew Henry's commentary. If you want a whole Bible commentary, this is all of his commentary on every verse in the Bible, it's, it's excellent. You'll need a magnifying glass because the print is minuscule. But if you wanted one good commentary... This would be it, my highest recommendation. He's, he's great. Uh, second would be John Calvin, but he's got a commentary on every book of the Bible. This is just the one on Psalms. Um, and so that's a little longer and be a bit more money. We're in the Psalms, and so some of you ask, what do you look at for the Psalms? Well, the best on the Psalms is Charles Spurgeon, the treasury of the Psalms. It's a delight. There's three volumes in it. it it's excellent. But a smaller one is Henry Law. Daily Prayer and Praise, the book of Psalms arranged for private and family use. It is so much fun. This one is. So anyways, if you wanted some of those, do that. But we're in Psalm 23. Turn there if you would. Uh, How good it is to belong to God, isn't it? He has received us. He is my, our shepherd. He cares. He provides. We have real security. We're full of errors and sins. Our desires are all out of whack, and yet here is God coming to us in such incredible care. Uh, And so just keep that in your head, but are you angry at God? This past Friday was the 15th anniversary of my father's death. And one of the things I have sometimes recognized in myself is kind of this, why did you do that, God? Why did you do that? Why did you take him? This is particularly true not only because of the anniversary, but next, a week from today, I'm taking my boys to the Boundary Waters. It's something my dad and I did. And so as I'm preparing the equipment that he purchased 30 years ago, I, you know, it's torture. I mean, it's so much fun, it's torture, but I, I'm, I'm angry at God for that. And, and so I'm thinking of Psalm 23, thinking of that, and then I'm thinking, because I'm a pastor, you probably won't admit that you're angry at God. We're too Christian for that. Because Christianity is 
to be a, a liar. <laughs> you have to come to church and not be a sinner. You have to come to church and be squeaky clean. Some of our problem is that we're just too good. So we won't be honest. And how are we going to ever know Psalm 23 if we don't have this kind of need for God? And where else do you need God but that place or those places of most sorrow and pain and loss and grief where you are angry at God? And then Psalm 23 is life. It's not just a good chapter in the Bible. It's life. Can't make it without this. So if you'll be honest with God, and one of the things that I read in one of the commentaries was how unique Psalm 23 is because the rest of the Psalms are just questioning, complaining. It's very rare, this kind of full, confident assurance of God's care. It's mostly, how long, God? Where are you? But we're too good for those Psalms. We're, we're too dull. Jesus said, John the Baptist came fasting and wearing clothes and, you know, you called him a wacko. And here I come feasting and you call me a glutton. Or said another way, we're too dull for a, to weep at a funeral and too dull to dance at a wedding. I, I just, don't we want to be a part of a church where you can be real? I know that's a stupid way to put it, but be angry at God. At least then Psalm 23 will be precious to you. I said it many times before that what churches do with their pastors is they constantly make a deal. Just preach the word like a lecture. Just give us good information, especially the kind of information that leaves us going, wow, I never knew that. Just do that, but leave us alone. Don't, don't pick scabs. Don't point out the personal. Don't go after my conscience. Just titillate my mind. Just wow me with your impressive intellect. But don't get personal. How can you go to Psalm 23 and not walk away here tired? of how much you need this psalm. Another way to say it is, what need do you have of a shepherd if you're not a sheep? And you've heard it many, many times. Sheep are weak. They're stubborn. They're foolish. They're proud. They're prone to wander. And aren't you? Aren't I? So do you need Psalm 23? What need do you have of the Lord making you lie down in green pastures? So I want to read it. I want to take some time to... Uh, you're going to be the beneficiary of a month of me thinking of this psalm now. <laughs> so I want to give some kind of big general thoughts, and then I want to get down into verses, and then I want to apply it to people. 
shepherding us and how we care for others. So let's read. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack not a thing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores. He brings back my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, let your steadfast love come to us. You are the God of our salvation. Please, let us not be put to shame. Teach us to find delight in your word, especially this. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we come to a psalm of David, who, of course, was a shepherd. It's consistent in Scripture what high regard God has for farmers. I mean, it just is a central theme all throughout. Adam, Cain and Abel, all the way through, God is putting farmers in leadership over his people. And the main metaphor for the care of people's souls, pastoring, pastoring, pasture, farmer. I grew up in a community of farmers. The church I grew up with had all small dairy farms. And this was David. He was a farmer. He was a shepherd. And he wrote poetry. (laughs) Something. His left brain and right brain were integrated. What a guy. He was a hard manual labor and he could sing. And he could write poetry. So, uh, before we get into Psalm 23, I want to point out something. Psalm 22 is full of questions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Charles Spurgeon points out very helpfully the goodness of the ordering of these psalms. The position of this psalm, 23, is worthy of notice. It follows the 22nd, which is peculiarly peculiarly, the psalm of the cross. There are no green pastures there. There's no still waters. It is only after we read Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that we come to, the Lord is my shepherd. We must, by experience, know the value of bloodshedding, of sword awakening, suffering, before we shall be able to truly know the sweetness of the good shepherd's care. This is what I'm talking about. Psalm 22 prepares us for the care of Psalm 23. And so Christians will suffer. Take heart. God is my shepherd. 
And so if your experience, your life has Psalm 22 sort of parts in it, Psalm 23 is for. And as you have suffered and seen God bring you through and are more assured of his care and experienced it, you can be a help to others, can't you? Be a help to others. But this is, Psalm 23 is a psalm of confidence. It's a rarity in, in the psalms. There's 150 of them and very few. You can count them all on both hands. Most psalms don't have complete confidence like Psalm 23. They'll have many verses of complaint or sorrow or fear and then confidence at the end or interspersed. But this is a rarity of just full expression of assurance. And so don't get too like hard on yourself of, wow, I just don't live in Psalm 23 very often. Well, neither did David. This is a very small percentage. And yet, this is ours. This is for us. And I do want you to hear again that the reality of the truth of Psalm 23 for us, this great, loving, intimate care of God is not given to you because you're so good. This care of God isn't yours because of your works, your intelligence, your reading of big fat commentaries. It's grace. God condescends to us. What does the word condescending mean? Is it a good or bad word? It's very bad. He's so condescending. This is somebody who thinks they're better than you and looks down on you and talks to you in a way that's belittling. They're superior, you're inferior, and they make you to feel it. Well, that negative word has a very positive connotation. Is God superior to us? Absolutely. Infinitely. He's holy. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And does he condescend to us? Does he come down to us? It's what fathers do all the time with their kids when they're little. They get down on their knees. I notice parent moms don't do the goo-goo-ga-ga-ga stuff. Guys do it. That's to condescend in a good way. God is here condescending to us in care because of Christ. And his care for us is gracious. It's given because of faith in his son. It's, it's not like Psalm 23 is just for pastors. Or it's not like Psalm 23 is just for the moms who have it all together. Because they don't. They just make you think they do. Psalm 23 isn't just for the guys who can weld. Or know all the good fishing spots and always, whatever. Psalm 23 is for sinners, graciously saved by a heavenly father whose son's blood was spilt for us, raised from the dead, and all who are in him truly by faith have Psalm 23 as their reality. It's given to you by grace. But there is this aspect of Psalm 23 which is very difficult for Christians. There is probably no area in pastoral ministry, and I've been doing this for 20 years, that I've come up against in people doubting their salvation. 
they really struggle to believe that Psalm 23 is true. The word my in verse 1 is the problem. The Lord is a shepherd, right? Anybody have any trouble admitting that? Anybody have any trouble admitting that God is God and he takes care of people? Anybody have any problem? How many of you have a problem saying the Lord is my shepherd? My. He's my shepherd. And I especially mean that in your daily life. When you're going through something, do you have confident assurance like this bold statement, the Lord is my shepherd? I can believe it for you. David's here confessing it of himself. He believes it. Now, don't neglect to remember that the David who wrote Psalm 23 also wrote Psalm 22. Where are you? What's wrong, God? Why are you so far off? Why don't you listen? Why don't you come near? Don't you see what they're doing to me? But he still had this confident assurance. Well, there's four places you might live where you might actually be in relation to the confidence in this psalm. One is, you are a genuine Christian, and you have confidence that the Lord is my shepherd. That's like having heaven on earth. You have heaven, but you're experiencing it here on earth because you are assured of God's fatherly care for you. You read Romans 8, that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ, and you believe it. That's a really sweet place to be. The other is, The Lord is your shepherd, but you doubt it. You have heaven, but you don't experience it here on earth because you doubt. You really struggle to believe that the Lord is my shepherd. And then down here you have somebody that the Lord is not their shepherd. They do not have faith in Christ. They are not born again, but they believe they are. That's a dangerous, terrible place to be. You presume on the grace of God. You just think because you're good or your family's good or you're at a good church. or You just presume on God. That's a dangerous place to be. And then, of course, you have those who know that they're not in Christ. They admit it. So what do we do? Well, those in that upper left, God, you, you, you know Christ and you know you know Christ. You have assurance. Just rejoice. That's a gift of God's grace to experience heaven on this earth and to know that even in trial. And then be patient and kind with others who don't have it. Use this grace that gives you strength to care for others. How about those in the upper right? This is the group I'm very concerned with. You you sometimes believe you believe Christ. Sometimes you don't believe you believe Christ. And you'd like to. You'd like to be confident and assured and have the assurance that you see in Psalm 23. What do you do? Again, this is a sermon, so let me just give you a few. Just ask God for it. He, he is a good father who does give, and sometimes we have not because we ask not. And so make it your work. Consider it like something God has given you to do to seek it. There are tools, there are activities God gives you to 
He'll use by grace to bring you to more assurance. And it begins with prayer. Maybe memorize Psalm 23. Maybe you have hidden sin in your life that you've been unwilling to confess, and that's the source of your lack of assurance. But as you seek it, pray, but then seek help. Most of those who have come to the upper left quadrant have been assisted greatly by others. And so come and make it known and ask for help. What do you do if you're in the lower two quadrants? Well, if you're in the lower left, this is one of the reasons, let's say at the Lord's Supper, that we are consistently told in the Bible to examine ourselves. Don't presume. Probably the greatest way to know whether you're in the lower left there, you say you know Jesus, but you don't, is how you don't care for God's people. And First John, he helpfully makes us aware that you can't say you love God and not have a record of loving God's people. And then on the lower right, I would just urge you to repent and believe the gospel. You are in great danger. God is judge. He could be friend through Christ. So those are some overall thoughts on the psalm. Let's now go take a more close look. We have... I've read Psalm 23 many times. I don't think I've ever preached it just as a sermon. But of course... Is there any more chapter in the Bible that we're more familiar with than Psalm 23? And I've always read it as if it's only talking about one thing. It's just about shepherding. But there's actually two metaphors in it. In the first four verses, you have the metaphor of God as shepherd. He knows the sheep. He pays, pays careful attention to him. He's right there with them. He's caring, feeding, leading, defending the sheep. And then in verse 5, the metaphor switches. He goes from the field to the table. From the work of the farmer in the field to the feast, the fruit of the field at the table. So from shepherd to party host. (laughs) From shepherd to host. It's not that we're just merely surviving in verses 5 and 6, that God is such a God that He such a feast before us in the presence of our enemies and we are victorious. And this, and these two metaphors describe, paint a picture generally of God's intent for his people. This is what God is doing for you no matter what God is giving to you. So if you were to ask the question, why are you doing this, God? Why did you take my dad? Why this disease? Why is gas so expensive? Why is my child? Why am I such a... Well, what God is doing in all of those things is described here as a shepherd. He is bringing whatever... He is bringing into your life so that you will be convinced that He is your shepherd, you don't lack anything, and He is teaching you to lie down, to be still, to bring you back to Him, to lead you in His paths of righteousness, to show you the the precious strength of His presence. 
This is where he is intent on taking us. It shows us his great goodness towards us. With the overturn of Roe versus Wade, there's been lots of good stories coming out. And one of the best that I've heard is by a doctor named Dr. Story. When he and his wife were dating, they uh, were in sin. They're both Christians, came from Christian homes, really good church, but they were fornicating. And she got pregnant. And she was ashamed, and she went to her local Planned Parenthood. And they were willing to shepherd her. There was not real good care, no like personal care for her, just get an abortion. So she had scheduled the abortion for the next day, I guess, at that time in whatever state they were in. You couldn't have the abortion the same day. This is, a, this is a, according to her, a very godly young woman who committed sin, who was pregnant, who was now going to murder her child. And she knew it, but she wanted to hide it. She didn't want to be found out. As she was leaving the Planned Parenthood, she saw other girls coming in and, for abortions and saw that she couldn't do that. And by God's providence, her family doc was right across the road from the Planned Parenthood. And so she just went right over there, you know, just bawling. They brought her right in without an appointment. And there she met a nurse who was a Christian who shepherded her also. This nurse, according to her, listened. She confessed the nurse that she was in sin and pregnant. She said the nurse didn't say much, but at the end of it, all, the, all that her nurse said is, you're going to have a beautiful baby. So what I want to bring up is God is, in whatever he's doing in our lives, shepherding us towards what we see in Psalm 23. But you have to realize everything in the world is trying to shepherd you. Okay? You'll never lack for shepherding. Okay? It'll it'll be Planned Parenthood kind of shepherding or Godly Nurse kind of shepherding. And the way to help you be discerning is, are they leading me like Psalm 23? Are they leading me to trust and rest in God? Are they leading me to his paths of righteousness? Are they leading me to know God's presence is sufficient for me in my teenage pregnancy where I know people are going to know what I've done? How are they shepherding me? The end goal, the goal is Psalm 23. He is our maker. He is our Lord. And whatever he is doing, he is doing for the purposes we see in Psalm 23. Now, another way to say it is, he's not like your corporate boss who's just trying to get the most out of you for however long you're at the business but doesn't really give a rip for you. That's our world, isn't it? Just all your worth is what you can give. And so long as you're giving what we value as a business, then you're worth something. Now, that's needed in a business, all right? You got to work hard and you have to produce. And so we don't want to be the kind of church that uh, uh, applauds laziness and I deserve, even though I'm not producing, if you're not producing, you ought to be fired. And the same in the Christian life. We are to be fruitful. We are to bear fruit. 
But God's care for us is not so mercenary. He's a shepherd. In John 10, Jesus is shown to be the true shepherd. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He comes into the sheep. He dwells with the sheep. He sleeps out in the pasture beside the sheep. He leads the sheep to good pasture, to fresh water. He disciplines the sheep. He keeps them from danger, from eating what they should need, from getting close to where the wolves may be. He is a good shepherd. And he's doing it all very relationally, right with us to get us to what we see in Psalm 23, especially the last verse, that we may dwell in his house forever. I wish I could just hammer that into your head, into your heart. The intent with which God intends for whatever he's doing in your life is Psalm 23. The answer to all of your whys is this. Why, God? Well, to make you lie down in green pastures. To restore your soul. Why this, God? To bring you back. To restore your soul to me. Why, God? So that I can prove to you, right at death's door, that I am with you. You don't have to be afraid. Why for that person, God? To convince them that I've got a feast for them. This is the answer to your whys. So we are, as I said, leaving for the Boundary Waters in a week, and I'm very excited, thinking about it all the time. And one of the delights of that wonderful place is that you have to slow down. It's a canoe and a paddle. You can't get anywhere fast. It's slow. You get a lot of time to think, and it's rhythmic. You just hear the bloop, bloop. It's delightful. So let's do that now with the psalm. Let's slow down. Psalm 23 is an unspoilt wilderness. Let's just take it verse by verse, and then I want to apply it to shepherding. Are you hanging with me? I, please, this is... I'm preaching one sermon on Psalm 23. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is kind of the overview of the entire psalm. Isn't it a delight? Is there any better verse in the entire Bible? I don't, that's probably heresy to say something like that. But Is there any better verse? I mean, this is the cross of Christ in some. The Lord is my shepherd. How? Christ. It's not earned. It's given. He's adopted you. He has selected you as his sheep. Get in my pen. I'm your shepherd. You don't lack anything. This is God towards every beloved child in Christ. This is not true of everyone everywhere. Please don't mistake that. This is one of the things that Christians love to do. Well, God loves everybody. Well, yeah, but not like this. This is reserved for his sheep. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It's the righteous that he is like this towards. And this is a confession of faith, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. This is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord is shepherd. 
The Lord is the one who watches over me and feeds me and leads me and takes care of me. And this is possible to have this kind of confidence as a child of God, no matter your age. There are people who are 70 years old that struggle to believe that God is their Lord and shepherd. And so if this is in the Bible, this can be our reality. Seek it. And that line, I shall not want, isn't that delightful? What does that mean? That's kind of an odd way to say it. It's kind of, uh, you know, the, the word arrangement is, we don't talk like that. What does it mean? I don't lack a thing. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Is this hyperbole? No. This is reality. Why do we struggle to believe it? Because we're very materialistic. Because we're Americans. Because I want perfect hair and perfect teeth and perfect clothes and a perfect body and a nicer car, and I don't have those things, so I must lack something. <laughs> I want to be six foot six. Tough nuts. Do you lack anything? Is First Peter 1.3, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. True. God has given us everything for life here and now and for life forever. Why? Because he's that kind of shepherd. This is one of the things the farmer always does for his animals. This is what the Heavenly Father does for us. Verses 2 and 3 then explain, 2, 3, and 4 explain what that first line means. Let's take two and three together. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Again, this is the goal of our Heavenly Father for his beloved sheep. Isn't that delightful? Isn't that wonderful? How many of you grew up with a father and mother that you could never measure up for him? I don't mean a parent who simultaneously had great joy in you, but also just wanted more. That's good. But somebody just, it was always criticism. There's no rest. There's no peace. That's not our Heavenly Father. I can't help but thinking and reading those two verses that he must be talking about worship. Sabbath day. How many of you think that honoring the Sabbath is still something Christians should do? I want you to raise your hand. How many of you think that's actually still a law in the Bible that Christians should obey? Okay, put them down. How many of you actually still do it and are careful to do it? Yeah, you're all liars. <laughs> Every one of you. I don't. I've been very convicted of this over the last couple of months. I am not careful to enter into the rest that God has told me to every seventh day. What do I mean? What is the Sabbath for? Is the Sabbath just to do whatever you want? My understanding of the Sabbath is a margarita in a hammock. And kids not bothering me. 
Isn't that awful, kids? Do you know that? Do you, are you aware of that, that that's my goal? You are. Please forgive me. The kind of rest isn't that. It's spending the day seeking God. Worshiping God. Spending time with God's people. Practicing hospitality. Visiting a shut-in. Helping a widow. Taking a young man without a father to fish. Taking a young woman without a Mother to learn how to sew. Oh, doesn't that rile you up? Girls can fish. (laughs) Maybe one of the reasons that we lack the realities of verses 2 and 3 is because we don't honor the Sabbath. He restores my soul. Notice before I get to that, who's doing the work here? Isn't it something, the language? He makes me. He leads me. He restores. He leads. This is God's grace. Restores my soul, I think we understand mainly like psychologically that I'm internally sad or down or confused and he makes me feel better. It's a catharsis. It's like an internal refreshment. It's like, you know, listening to hard punk rock and then, you know, going to some very light Caribbean music or something. The word restore here is more parable of the lost sheep or prodigal son. It's that in our being, we're wandering from God and he's brought us back. All week long, we've been astray and he's... Restoring me. He's bringing me back home. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Psalm 23, restore my soul, isn't the psychological catharsis, although that could be a fruit of it. It's God grabbing hold of you and bringing you home. 99 sheep are here, one's lost, and he's going to get you to bring you back. That's what that means. The God of our age is feeling good. That's not what it's talking about here, although that could be the result of it. I wonder if we are such social media junkies because that's all we want. We just want to hit. We want to feel good, and so we scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and ignore all the other humans. Scroll and scroll and scroll because I just want to feel better. I want to feel scroll, 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 and there is the God in the heavens calling you back to him. And often, that kind of restoration, that kind of green pasture, still waters, comes by spending time with God's people. But we can't because we've got a phone. And where he's going to lead you back to is a path of righteousness for his glory. Isn't that something? We struggle as Christians with grace and law. We feel like paths of righteousness is legalism. Doesn't a path of righteousness sound like a nice walk? No. I just want to do what I want to do. But where he's narrow, few will find it. 
But where he's restoring you to is a narrow path of obedience to him for his glory. And we look at that and go, well, that doesn't sound fun at all. And girls just want to have fun. So says the prophet of our age. Because our emotions, our heart, our minds are so warped that we think path of righteousness as like driving through Iowa. <laughs> or Illinois, especially. I want to go to Idaho or Wyoming or... God help us, Disney. The path of righteousness, guys. Is God's word, is God's law good? Doesn't it actually lead to joy and good relationships and peace? You do have to say no to things to walk on the path of righteousness. That's where he's leading you. Verse 4. Verses 1 to 3 are comfort in life, says one commentator. Verse 4 is comfort in death. It's, it's odd here, the juxtaposition. In two, green pastures, still water. In three, this restoration. And now in four, we're in a valley of a shadow of death. From green pastures to a valley of a shadow of death, just like that. Isn't that life? Isn't that? There are many of you experiencing this in our congregation right now. Everything was good and then... This is why the Bible is so helpful. It is reality. Now, there's good news in this verse. It's a shadow of death. Because Christ is raised, death is no longer what it was. It's just a shadow of what it was. And it's just a walk through. Not our home. Though this world is a world of misery, we're just walking through here. Death is just a shadow because Christ has been raised. This world is like Frodo and Samwise in Mordor. It's true. It's really hard here. And what's our comfort? You are with me. This is, this is the place we have to fight for faith. You are with me. This is what Psalm 22 is wrestling with. Jesus hanging on the cross, bearing our sin. The Father judging him. And what does the Son cry out? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, God's instruments of shepherding, a rod and a staff, a rod is like a club, a cudgel. It's a defensive weapon meant to beat off enemies and to knock straying sheep back into line. A staff is that curved crook that a shepherd uses very skillfully. You can watch videos on it. When sheep are getting away, they can grab them really quickly and Keep them from harm. So this is both God's protection and discipline of us. But we're so wise in our parenting, aren't we, to spare the rod? 
And yet that's our comfort in the shadow of death. God is a good shepherd who protects and disciplines his people. Verses 5 and 6 then, as I said, change the metaphor. We go from the field to the table, from the shepherd to the host. Meals in the Bible are very, very important. In the garden, God slaughtered animals and covered them in their skins, and I guarantee there was a feast there. In Exodus chapter 24, after bringing God's people out of slavery to his holy mountain, he brought all of the elders up on the mountain for a feast. And then, of course, Christ. What is the last thing he did before his betrayal? Huh? Last supper. Last supper. A meal, a feast. This shows you the extent of our salvation. He's going to bring you right to his table. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? He's not going to keep you in the foyer, in the entryway. He's going to meet you at the door, bring you right in, pull back your chair and have you have a seat, and it's going to be full. Cup overflowing, full. Anointed with the pleasing oil, cup full, plate full, not partial. And while you eat, all of his and our enemies will be forced to watch. Isn't that something? I don't know if there's anything better. If you wanted vengeance, not to kill your enemy, but to make them watch you enjoy a meal in God's presence. This is the extent of our salvation. In fact, the two words in verse 6 describe it. Goodness and mercy all the days of my life. Now, there are times in your life where you're in acute pain when you look at it and you don't see goodness and mercy. But as you go through life and look back on your life, all you'll see is God has been good and God has been merciful. Is that true for you who are older? You've been through real pain Real difficulty, but it hasn't God been good and merciful. It's not true. And he takes us to be in his house forever. Isn't that a delightful way to end this? To be with the Lord forever. I am going to quit there. We'll hit on the other stuff later. Let me end with Revelation 7 as a way to sum it up. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst. The sun sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Listen to this. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I do get angry at God for taking my father. But because of that, I can see the goodness of God in Psalm 23. He's brought him through death. You can get angry at God for things. Think about that story of that young girl who wanted to have abortion. You know what happened afterwards? She confessed her sin. Her church embraced her. They 
eventually married. The church let the husband and wife live in the church, and they were janitors while they got their family started. He's now a doctor. They've cared for thousands of young mothers. That's this kind of shepherding care. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe this. Help us to know it. Please, please, Father, make us lie down in green pastures. Please, lead us besides the waters. Restore us unto you. Lead us in paths of righteousness. Convince us of the goodness of your word. Help us where we're in the shadow of death to fear no evil because you're with us. Your good protection and discipline are ours. Help us to know that you are the God who brings us to a great feast. You'll give us everything we need out of your goodness and mercy for this life and the life to come. God, don't let us go away from here feeling nothing from this psalm, believing nothing more. Please, by your Holy Spirit, work it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.